Hello, listener. This is Storytime with Dave. I am your host, Dave. I think we got a good one for you today, folks. We're going we're gonna to look into some stuff. That's what I want to do because there are things that I'm learning that I didn't realize. I didn't realize what they were really or the impact that they had. One thing that we're going to talk about, it'll be in the title, is the Patriot Act, which I had always heard about, but I never knew what it was. I just knew some people thought it was good and some people thought it was bad. What I've learned is that it's very bad. And I learned why by just looking into it some more. And you got to be careful about where you're getting the information from. And this is the this is the issue. And this is one of the things that frustrates me a lot. Because people will say this is uh, that the government is saying this. They'll say something like that. They'll say, well, this has been verified by the government. Now, when you're talking about an act that gives the government more power, why would the government have anything bad to say about that? You understand? So, I don't know. It's like a blind adherence to the government so long as the government is saying what you want. Same with the government institutions. As long as they're saying what you want, then they're credible. But as soon as they're not saying what you want, they're not credible. And in the same way, whoever's in charge, it makes the whole thing somehow credible. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, I don't know if a government institution changes that much when the president changes. For a lot of these I mean, we have so many government institutions. And when I'm saying government institutions, I'm talking about like the three letter, like the CDC and the FDA and the FBI and the CIA and all of these things. And even if a president is going to appoint a new leader, uh, a lot of the time that they, they, they'll keep the same people there that, you know, some of the institutions are less political than others. You know what I'm saying? Like some are, are more political and some are less political and some of them become more political and become less political. It depends on the time and what's going on. And so the more political something is, the more likely the new president, if it's a Republican now, is going to change things up. Or if it's a Democrat now, they're going to change things up. <clears throat> but for the most part, even if they do change the leadership, a lot of the same people stay. And so... The likelihood that just because, you know what I'm like, someone who's a Democrat when Obama is president might cite the government and say, well, the government's saying this. Don't you trust the government? But then when Trump is president, they go, oh, the government's saying it. Well, they, it must be wrong because Trump's in charge. But these, these institutions don't change as much as you would think. It's a lot of the same people. And it's funny, too, because like if you trust the government because your guy's in there. So if you love George Bush and he's in there and you're, you're, as a result, have a high degree of confidence in the government and you're going to cite statistics, let's say, from a government study, whatever study you want, it doesn't matter, but you're going to cite statistics in your argument from a 1983 study, right? Because George is, because it's 2006 and George Bush is president and you trust the government. And then the same person who loves Obama in 2013 is going to cite the same 1983 statistics for whatever argument they're having. I know this is like, it's abstract, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, it was still, it was the same study back then. 
It's just that now you have more confidence in the current government, which has no impact on what already happened. So <clears throat> you see that, and the point that I'm going to make is that you see that with the Patriot Act, because the initial Patriot Act was signed into law. It was when George Bush was president. This was in 2001, and it was right after 9-11. So that one passed overwhelmingly because you will see that in times of war, it becomes very, very, very hard, or in times of crisis like that, it becomes very hard to think critically and to uh, dissent. That's why only one person voted against that bill. So only, and I don't even know, who was it? Let me see. I'm, uh, I have all this stuff up in front of me. Um, but where was it? Hang on, I'm pausing for one sec. Okay, I'm focusing specifically on the Senate when I'm giving you these numbers. The Congress reflects a similar reality, but I feel like the Senate's a really good way to uh, drive the point home because it's 100 and it's easier. I mean, sometimes it's a little less because someone might not vote. Um, but let's see, this guy, Russell Feingold, have you ever heard of him? I've never heard of him. Uh, Feingold was a senator from Wisconsin and was a Democrat, and he served from 1993 to 2010. Well, this brave individual was the only one. He was the only one who didn't vote for the original Patriot Act. Now, the original Patriot Act, I should note, is 132 pages. So I'm assuming most people didn't look into it. Most of the elected officials didn't look into it. And a little later, I'll read some of it because just the way laws, I mean, this is one of the big problems with, with laws and, and uh, like lawyers and interests that are outside of the government being so involved in the political process because laws are written in a way that are literally impossible to understand. Like even a lawyer probably has to read through them over and over again to decipher what they mean. They're written completely in coded language, not coded language like, uh, you know, I mean, coded language in the sense that like, again, you wouldn't have any idea. The average person would have no idea what they mean. You have absolutely no idea what they mean, but they do that clearly on purpose because what's buried in that 132 pages for example, is what they're doing in Portland right now, where they're just these federal agents and troops are just kidnapping people. They're not arresting them because they're not police and they're not reading them the rights or anything and handcuffing them. They're just kidnapping them. And this is legal because of the Patriot Act. And the point that I was going to make too, though, is that Everyone voted for it in 2001. This was the initial act was passed 98 votes to one, 98 to one. <clears throat> and because if you, I'm sure that guy got a lot of shit, that Democrat, I already forgot his name, Russell Feingold. I'm sure he got a lot of shit. I'm sure people were calling him a terrorist sympathizer. They were calling him un-American. He was probably, I'm amazed that he made it to 2010 because I would, have, I would have expected that he would just get booted out immediately after voting against that. So he was the only one. But 
they you know they don't think about anything but re-election i mean maybe there was a time in american history where elected officials didn't care so much about getting reelected like that wasn't the top priority but it is now and uh so yeah you couldn't vote against something like this you wouldn't be able to because it's called the usa patriot act how could you vote against that listen to this uniting and strengthening america by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism acts of 2001 that's the full name of it that's the usa patriot act isn't that ridiculous they use they use patriotism for totalitarianism it's amazing dude and we'll get more into that in a little bit i wanted to start <clears throat> i wanted to hit a few topics because there's this theme that i'm realizing is that you can take the media narrative or whatever it doesn't have to be a media narrative either it could be a meme that's going around it could be things that are very simple a a news article a headline and all you need to do is look into it you could do your own investigations this is how i stumbled upon the patriot act you know because i had heard a lot mentioned about it from people that i'm reading and so i looked into it some more and then people were sharing all of that like people are really mad about what's going on in portland as they should be and but then i was able to to make the connection obviously that because if you know what the patriot act is then you know that that's the, what they're using to justify what they're doing in portland so it's legal what they're doing and it's it's fucked up you watch those videos it's disturbing man i mean these are i saw one where these guys are wearing like i don't know if they're official medics but they had the medic like plus sign or whatever the red cross or whatever and they're just standing by this guy who's knocked out cold he's laying on the ground this has gone viral so maybe you'll see it but these troops just walk up and they just start beating them uh one guy in particular and then they all have to run away and then they, they have to leave the guy who's knocked out cold who might be dead you don't even know i mean i'm sure people are dying i'm sure that these people are are maybe inadvertently killing people and in some cases like if you're just gonna beat the fuck out of people then uh yeah i mean you know they might die okay that's kind of part of uh beating the fuck out of people is that they might die so anyway one thing that i was seeing a lot of people share on facebook the other day and i decided to look into it um was fauci who is uh I, you know how i made the two episodes one of them was like fauci is scum and the next one was like fauci's actually a good guy i made those like back to back the second one was wrong i was right the first time fauci is scum but anyway um <clears throat> Fauci was saying like New York did it right. He was talking about the coronavirus and he was like, New York did it right. Um, the way they handled it was the right way to go and more states should be handling it not like New York. And I, I was I was intrigued and I saw a lot of people from New York who I, who I know who were sharing that. And I thought, well, of course they would be sharing that because they're from New York, so... Why wouldn't they share that? Some New York pride. Why not? We did it right. And I was looking, I said, well, let me check the numbers on that and see if that adds up. Because according to the news and to all of the headlines and everything that people are saying on Facebook, Florida is hell. And all of these southern states that allowed 
people out and didn't force them to wear masks and stuff and didn't really lock down that hardcore, those places are hell on earth right now. That's my understanding. And for, for a few weeks now, because they just didn't play it right. So I wanted to see if the numbers would back that up. And so I, I looked it up and um, let's just do it by state, shall we? Let's go deaths by state. Okay, so coming in first place, number one, the place that handled it the best, according to Dr. Fauci, is New York State with 32,228 deaths. Remember that number, 32,228 deaths in the state that did it right, in the state that did it the best. The second state is my own state. Many of you live here as well. It's New Jersey. New Jersey, where our governor jokingly said something to the effect of, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said something to the effect of, well, if you don't like it here, why don't you go to Georgia? Why don't you just go to Georgia? See how they're handling it? If you don't like it here, why don't you just go to Georgia? Well, Murphy has done such a good job that New Jersey only has 15,737 deaths as a result of COVID in second place. So we're almost as good as New York. In second place is New Jersey with 15,737. Now, I am so thankful that I don't live in that hellhole, Georgia, that, that Governor Murphy was making fun of. I am so thankful to not live in Georgia, because in Georgia, 3,186 people have died. Can you believe this? 3,186 people have died. Whereas in New Jersey, 15,737 people have died. So I'm so thankful that I live in a state with such competent leadership. The kind of leadership that, that Dr. Fauci lauds that he says we're doing it right. And you know what? I am proud to be a New Jerseyan because our 15,737 deaths are something to be proud of. And Georgia, those idiots in Georgia who don't believe in science, they've got 3,186 deaths. Thank goodness I'm not there. I mean, if you think like, <clears throat> I was trying to think of counter arguments for this, but Let's see the population of New Jersey and the population of Georgia. Population of New Jersey. Let's see. It is 8.8 .8 million. And now let's see the population of Georgia. It is um, 10.62 million. So there's more people. Georgia is a bigger state. But let's see population of Atlanta for a second. Hang on. Atlanta. The population of Atlanta is 500,000, okay? And what's the biggest city in New Jersey? What's the biggest city in New Jersey? I don't know. Hold on. Okay, the biggest city in New Jersey is 282,000. So it's almost half. It's a little more than half. So if you're going to use that as a counter argument, you understand what I'm saying here? Um, well, New Jersey's more densely populated and there's big... Well, no, I mean... Atlanta cities are densely populated. Atlanta is twice as big as the biggest city in New Jersey. So that logic doesn't really hold up. Not to mention, I'm looking right here, Georgia, 136,000 confirmed cases. 
and New Jersey, 179,000 cases. So that's, you know, what, what would that be like? 50,000 more cases a boot? That's a boot 50,000 more cases, which is like 25 or 30% more cases. It's like 30% more cases. But then why do we have, why do we have five times more deaths? If we only have 1.3 times as many cases, why do we have five times as many deaths? Because we handled it well? <laughs> and how does it, again, with New York, it's like, I know New York City is a, is a city of 9 million people, but how do you explain that they have the most deaths? If you take New Jersey out of it, they've got, the next closest is Massachusetts with 8,000 deaths, 8,400. So how does New York have four times more deaths? Boston's a big city too. I mean, it's not nearly as big as New York City, but I guess New York City can explain the ridiculous number of cases. But why did they do such a bad job of not letting people die? Why did they do such a bad job of... But Fauci said this is the... I mean, dude, just look at it. Like, Google it right now. U.S. COVID deaths by state. That's what I'm looking at right now, and it's insane. And you know what? It automatically goes to cases because they. I feel like they want to paint a different picture because, look, when I go to confirmed cases, here's what the list looks like. It goes California, New York, Florida, Texas, New Jersey, Arizona, Georgia, right? You see? But then when you go to deaths, it's like, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, California, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida. Then Florida comes up. So Florida's hell on earth with 5,300 deaths. And look at this, dude. Look at this. Florida has 380,000 confirmed cases. Compare that with the 414,000 from New York. You see? So Florida only has... 34,000 less cases than New York and yet somehow has 17, no, 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 27,000 fewer deaths. And I know what you're going to say that a lot of these are new cases in Florida. And so we'll see, we'll see how it turns out. I'm like, well, we'll wait on it. We'll see how it turns out. But you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, that's a, still a huge disparity. I don't know if they're going to, even with all these new cases, they're going to cover that margin. I could see Florida eclipsing New Jersey, potentially, but to go all the way, New York is, an, is a clear anomaly in this. New York is the anomaly. Because even in California, in California, they were, okay, Cal, okay, here you go, dude. Oh my gosh, this is crazy. In California, where I guess it's not spiking as much anymore. I mean, when, I, when, I, when my parents are watching the state propaganda, they don't really talk about spiking cases in California. They mostly talk about Florida and Texas. And it's clearly a political bias. I mean, they're, they're trying to point out that these red states are hell. Whereas if you look at the deaths, and I'm not, I'm like, <clears throat> I'm trying to point out the hypocrisy of politicizing it. That's all I'm trying to do here. I don't really care. You know, but I'm trying to point out here that the four highest death rates are dark blue states. Almost all of them in the top 10 are blue states. So why try to politicize it? Because that just makes you look bad. But look, this is what I'm saying. California, where apparently the, the cases aren't spiking too much, 
has has or had 417,000 confirmed cases. That's 3,000 more than New York. But you know how many deaths? 7,900. So how did California get 25% the amount of deaths that New York got? It is curious. It is certainly curious. It is certainly a question worth asking, I believe. I do believe it's a question worth asking. And uh, I don't know, dude. I mean, you just look like Google it. Just look at what I'm looking at. It is a an anomaly. And so the absurdity of Fauci. Hang on one sec. Okay, look. Yeah, this is I just found this. Um, coronavirus news. Dr. Fauci says New York did it correctly. This is ABC News. New York did it correctly. Um, we need, okay, hang on, hang on. Okay, it appears that um, we have to get them to the right people who can do the proper identification, isolation, and contact tracing, and even go beyond that, Judy, to be able to test more widely in a, in a more surveillance way. So you can get a feel for the extent and penetrance of this community spread. What do you mean in a more surveillance way? It's weird, man. I mean, it's like I, I have I have like less patience than I used to have. And which is not good because it doesn't help my cause. But I have far less patience at this point for people who cannot see the obvious way that this is being used to just increase the power of the surveillance state, which will tie back into the Patriot Act, because before this, the the Patriot Act was almost unprecedented, not really, but at least in the last few decades, it was kind of unprecedented in the degree to which it created a very strong surveillance state, and it really deprived us of a lot of uh, civil rights, human rights, and maybe not for everyone, but for anyone who is deemed a problem. That's what you'll you'll see when we go into the Patriot Act. That's what you'll find. Is that it might not have affected, well, it affected your rights in some way or another. It undoubtedly did. It affected everyone. But those who are uh, unsavory, to the corporate state were especially impacted by this. Those who had influence and were articulate and critical of the government found it uh, found their rights especially affected by something like the Patriot Act. But now we're seeing that I just again I don't have much patience. Like it doesn't it can be apolitical, and in fact. A lot of the people who I see who are like, again, science is a religion now. It used to be the Bible says, and now it is scientists say. Especially when you see the um, the prevalence, is, am I using that word right? When you see the prevalence of people citing news articles that say scientists have found And then all you have to do is find the study and they're lying about it. And it's the same way that people will use the Bible to justify 
bad things. People will use the Bible and say, well, the Bible says this. The Bible says we have to kill the gays or whatever. <coughs> People have done this forever. They will use the Bible. I got to get some water because I'm talking so much. I'm like yelling. I'm so passionate. I'm going upstairs. I'm just grabbing some water. But they'll use the Bible. You know they do this. They'll use the Bible to justify bad things happening to people that they don't like. And they'll say the Bible says, and they're, they're counting on the fact that no one reads the Bible. No one reads the Bible. They rely on priests to translate the Bible. You see? So... The new Bible is science with the capital S and the priests are really whoever, whoever wants to talk about it and wants to say, well, scientists are saying, and they can manipulate this in any way because they know that no one's going to read the studies because people are afraid of things that are more than two pages long. Okay. Many of you probably are. If you see something that's more than two pages long, you start to panic. Well, you should probably just read, listen. You want to know how to get over that for the rest of your life? You need to read one long book, okay? This is all you need to do. You need to find a book. You need to find a book that is at least 600 pages. And you need to read that, okay? That's all you need to do. You will never be intimidated again by long writing. You know, a long article, a 10,000-word article, or a study that's 30 pages. You will not be intimidated by this whatsoever. <clears throat> That's all you need to do is read one book. Read the first Game of Thrones book. This is all you need to do. Read Dune. This is all you need to do. You will never be, you know, read any Stephen King book. That dude writes ridiculously long books. Just read one book. The longer, the better. Read, you know, uh, Anna Karenina or something. But read one. Jesus, man, just read one book. I don't even care if it's long. Read one book for crying out loud. Jesus, we are, we are a pathetic, willfully dumb population. Just read one book. And if you read a long book, you will never be intimidated by books again or by long articles or by studies. But this is what they do. They just count on you not looking at the study. And I've told you this before, and this is a little life hack. All you need to do because you'll, you'll open the study and you're going to read the abstract. You're going to try to read the abstract. And it's going to be very confusing with a lot of technical language. You don't need to read any of it. I mean, you can and you'll get a better understanding of it. You want to especially look at the methods. You want to look at the methods. For example, I saw a poll that someone shared on Facebook the other day. I saw a poll that someone shared on Facebook the other day. And so I, I clicked it. Because it was obviously some MSNBC poll. It was based on 1,100 survey phone interviews. And they didn't even provide the questions that they asked. So it's like, they don't think anyone's going to wonder about that. Like, dude, you could say whatever you want on a poll. You can make manipulative questions. Even the way you ask the questions can impact the responses. Polling is very unreliable, especially depending on who's doing it. And when the, when the institution conducting the poll has a clear uh, political bias, the likelihood that that poll is going to be accurate is almost 0%. They become so unreliable. 
And I mean, you know, it's not supposed to be perfect, but in a lot of ways it's, it's harmful. It's just no good. And uh, so the fact that people rely on polls to try to make a point, it's like, it's silly. And so you'll see a lot of these studies and it's based on surveys. And you're like, some of them are, are long surveys, which makes them better. But this is, that's the other thing. Who, who's going to do a long survey? You know, who's the type of person who's going to participate in a long survey? And so what is this a reflection of the population? I mean, I've taken, <clears throat> you know, I took a lot of political courses and some of them dealt with polling when I, when I was at school. And <clears throat> they said that to have like a st statistically significant um, poll, you need to, or I think, I think that I'm using that word, right? Statistically significant, but in order for a poll to be legit or considered legit, it needs to inter it needs to uh, interview or survey at least 2000 people. So apparently surveying, yeah, at least 2000 people out of, 350 million somehow is reflective of the nation or a portion of the nation. And I'm like, dude, you just think about this stuff logically. If there's a really long survey, who's going to do it? Are you going to do that? I don't know if I'd do that. I'd probably just ignore that. I'm how are they reaching out to these people? Are they calling them? Cause I would just ignore the call because if I, usually if I see a number and I don't know it, I just don't pick up. So I'm not getting polled. I'm guessing you are similar to me in that re regard. Um, at least some of you probably see a, a weird phone number and you just don't pick up. Well, who's the type of person who does pick up? I mean, it's a type of person. I'm not saying it's good or bad. But the people who are engaging in polling and who take it seriously are a particular type of person. And especially when you take into uh, consideration the fact that 100 million people don't vote. Who's less likely to participate in a poll than someone who doesn't vote? I mean, these people are completely apathetic when it comes to our political system. So why would they, why would they give a fuck about doing a poll? Why would they? Of course they wouldn't do that. I think it's more than 100 million people don't vote. And I don't blame them, dude. Because we have one party and you're voting for a tie. The, the, a literal tie that you tie around your neck is what I'm saying. You're voting for the color of the tie. In fact, sometimes Trump wears blue ties. So you're not even voting for the color of the tie. You're voting for nothing. I mean, you're just voting for the, um, the, the, you know, the, the PR guy. I mean, we have two, we have a corporate party and it has two outfits. One of them's blue and one of them's red. But that's what you're voting for is the outfit. What do you like more? Blue or red? What color? That's what you're voting for, your favorite color. If you like blue, then vote blue. If you like red, vote red. But that's literally what you're voting for is that color. And uh, I'm sorry if this is disappointing to hear for some of you, but I just encourage you to read some of the stuff that I've been reading, but just read at all, man. I mean... Don't go read in white fragility, but read, you know, if you want to get in touch with with uh, racial issues, then read uh, Cornell West, read Malcolm, Malcolm X. Wait, what are you doing? Read Malcolm X. 
He has an amazing autobiography. Go get it and read it. I'm, I'm reading it right now. It's fantastic. It's not at all hard to read. It's very easy to read. He writes in a way that is, it, it's, it's great. I mean, he's, he gets excited. You can tell in the writing that he's like excited to tell you about growing up and his life. And it's just, it's, it's, it's brilliant. And he peppers in the things that he learned about race from his experience. And he had a very interesting experience. So you should read these people. I mean, look, you're going to have these <clears throat> James Baldwin. Go read James Baldwin. Jesus Christ, man. What are you doing? And you watch these videos of these people. You watch these videos of these people that go viral on the internet. And they're activists. And they're just not... All they do is warp and manipulate the words of these people, or they just don't even. I mean, so many of these activists that I see and they're just yelling and stuff and they're just not in touch with the actual ideas. And it becomes very clear that they also didn't. If they did, they just don't have an understanding of what a lot of these people were saying. And. But they always uh, invoke them, you know? So if someone you're listening to is like, like they invoke them and they butcher them. So they'll invoke Martin Luther King, but they butcher the message. So why not go to the source? I keep telling you that. Just go to the source. Don't like you, you, you listen to me and I might be full of shit. So why don't you go check out some of the stuff that I'm talking about? What if I'm misinterpreting it? Why don't you read it? And make your own interpretation. But again, you're afraid to read. I don't know why. I don't know what it is with you. But you're afraid to read. Like six of you read. I think I have about a hundred listeners who listen to this. And like six of you read. So we gotta get that number up. Because I know you can. I know you can read, but you just don't. So you, you need to start doing that. And I'm telling you, I mean, I, I I'll tell you what, I'll make a reading list on my website which is davenamory.com, which I never use really. It's, uh, I think I still have show dates for like upcoming shows that were like last year on the website. So maybe I should clean it up a little bit because, uh, but whatever, I'll make a reading list and then you can just go check that out. I have great book recommendations because I only read mostly, dude, out of all the books I've read and at this point, and I didn't really start reading until I was like 23, 24. But most of the books that I've read at this point have been good. Like I've been good at selecting them because if a book's been out for decades or at least for a while and people really fuck with it, then it's probably a good book. This is not necessarily true, okay? But if a book's a classic, there's probably a reason for that. And so you could start there. But also if you find a book like I really like reading Chris Hedges, and he's contemporary. I mean, he, he still writes, you know, his latest book was written in 2018. He cites a lot of books in his book. He goes, well, as this person said in their book, and he quotes their book. And then I, if I like the quote, I'm like, that, that motherfucker sounds awesome. I'm going to go read their book. And I do. And so I, I can create this big reading list. So I'll share you. I'll share some books with you. And this is what I'm saying. Like, you have to have ideologically diverse influences. So you can't just listen to people. My parents think they have ideologically diverse 
influences because they listen to Democrats and then they also listen to Republicans who hate Trump. But these people, this is what I'm saying, they're all part of the corporate state. And so they think they're getting diversity because they're listening to these never Trump Republicans, but they're not. They're just hearing the same thing that the Democrat, the uh, establishment Democrats are saying with a red tie instead. That's all they're doing. But I'm saying I listen to like Cornell West and I listen to Rand Paul. I mean, Ron Paul sometimes it's like they wouldn't really agree with each other on most things. But the things that they do agree on when you're listening to wildly diverse, ideologically speaking, people is that you'll find that the things they do agree on are the fact that the United States is corporate state. Hey, I'm doing a podcast. You got Swiss cheese? I asked for cheddar cheese. You said shark Swiss. No, I did not. And that's... Why would you get me Swiss cheese? I got you cheddar. Good. Because I don't like Swiss cheese very much. And a very good looking ribeye. Nice ribeye. That's what I'm... I then requested you. Okay, well, you might get that money. We'll see. <laughs> I'll put it in the fridge. Love you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. Well, anyway, um, that was kind of a side tangent that I went on uh, about reading. But you should do it, please. Our society is crumbling to the ground. We need to individually make ourselves more intelligent and become more in touch with what's going on. You know, we got to wake up, so to speak. We got to become actual woke. We're not talking about microaggressions here. We're talking about the corporate state we're talking about institution we're talking about we're talking about the prison industrial complex the military industrial complex we're talking about severe economic inequality the things that are actually causing the problems okay so this is what we're talking about and this is what this is what we need to start learning about together because what we're going to find is that these people play games. The, the corporate state and the corporate elites use their red and blue outfits, their red and blue tie wearers to distract and deflect. And there's a perfectly good example. And I, I don't know if I mentioned this on the last episode. I might have, but it probably bears mentioning again. Recently, there were protests in Hong Kong. This was being covered by the U.S. media. Correct? You remember that, right? These Hong Kong protests, they um, were fighting specifically these uh, extradition laws. I'm not too familiar, but it had to do with extradition. Um, and basically, like... I don't know, dude, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm speaking out of a place of, of not much knowledge on this particular topic. But what I will tell you is the Hong Kong protesters were very pro um, Western ideology and they were waving their American flags and stuff and throwing tear gas canisters back at the the riot police and stuff. And not this isn't to say that that was a, that protest was wrong. What they were doing was wrong. I think it was good what they were doing. The U.S. government, 
I mean, the, the U.S. media covered that, right? So this is the important point. Now, it's the same with the Venezuela riots, when, if you remember when that was going on. And again, completely justified uh, protests and rioting because, you know, there's a lot of people. My understanding is that there's a lot of people starving and dying in Venezuela. And a lot of it has to do with government corruption. So there's completely justified and the U.S. government was covering that. And again, this is people rising up against a socialist government, okay, a, uh, an authoritarian socialist government. And then what about France, the yellow vests? Now, have you seen any coverage of that on the U.S. news? If so, has it, has it even come close to the coverage that, say, the Hong Kong protests got? Now, me personally, I didn't know anything about the yellow vest until very recently. And as it turns out, this has been going on since 2018. So for, you know, almost two years, this has been going on. And it's about economic justice, okay? It's about inequality in France and economic justice, which is like classic France, you know, we hate on France because they got slapped in World War II, which they did. But we hate on them a little too much because at the people of France, and we also hate on the people of France because they might be a little annoying, a little smelly. And we hate on them. But they have a lot of that revolutionary spirit that none of us have anymore because we're all cucks for the state. And so what we've lost, they have retained. And so they still have it. And they have this yellow vest movement that's been going on for two years, almost. And I think they gather on Saturdays and they just march and uh, protest. And these are big protests. But it's about economic justice. This is what you need to understand. Economic justice. And what does this mean? That poses the greatest threat to the corporate state. You know... All of the corporate influences are, are, are threatened when a movement becomes about economic justice. And in the United States, they've been so good at quelling any uh, bubbling up, you know, spirit of economic revolution because of the anti-communist rhetoric for almost a hundred years now. I mean, the anti-communist rhetoric started way back uh, when, when the Russian revolution was going on. And this isn't to say that um, communism's good because it's not. And people starve and die. And I don't see how you can make an argument around that. I mean, I have heard the argument that people are like, no, that's Western propaganda. But I've seen too much evidence that's too compelling to, to think that there wasn't widespread starvation and death in the Soviet Union and China and elsewhere. But those are the two primary examples. And when you're talking about tens of millions of people dying of starvation, it becomes hard to, uh, to get behind a political ideology that enables that to happen. With that being said, the degree to which the United States and 
particularly the United States media, has been able to vilify communism. They've been able to vilify the idea of an economic revolution or economic justice. They've been able to completely rid the language of socialism, right? So anything becomes socialism. And I was guilty of this, you know, when I was going through my libertarian conservative phase. Again, I I would say I've, I've gone through all these phases and I've retained certain aspects of all of them. So for some, it's less than others. But going through that phase, I, I was thinking like when people talked about Medicare for all, I was like, that's communism. That's terrible. We will slip into a communist totalitarian state. Well, I don't even know how that's a legitimate argument when we're already either in a corporate totalitarian state or we're, we're just on the precipice. So I'm like, how could you be making the argument that <clears throat> enacting economic reforms that produce less inequality might slip us into a communist totalitarian state it's like dude we're we're in the we're in the capitalist totalitarian state so what is it what, like at this point you're not you're not slipping towards in my view now i mean i don't think i don't view i view it less as slipping towards communism and socialism and more as pulling back from unfettered capitalism is what you would call it but just capitalism with with minimal rules so that's the reason why you never heard about the yellow vests movement that's the reason why the media doesn't cover it they have no problem covering the riots and the protests in uh in the streets over the killing of George Floyd. Again, these are justified protests. They have no problem covering that. In fact, corporations have no problem backing that. And Amazon has no problem putting Black Lives Matter. Meanwhile, I saw, I just saw something that, I think it was on Facebook, but Jeff Bezos made something like, I think it was $13 billion. Oh, here it is, Bloomberg. Jeff Bezos adds $13 billion in a single day to his fortune. Jeff Bezos, I'm looking at the article now. He added $13 billion to his net worth on Monday, the largest single day jump for an individual since the Bloomberg Billionaires Index was created in 2012. So... He's seen his fortune swell 74 billion in 2020 to 189.3 billion, despite the U.S. entering its worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. He's now personally worth more than the market valuation of giants such as Exxon, Mobile Corp, Nike, and McDonald's. Can you believe this? You know, so. That's why Jeff is happy. Jeff is happy to support Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter does not address any of the issues that allow Jeff Bezos to make $13 billion in one day.
You understand? And this is a great segue um, into Black Lives Matter because I want to talk about that too. And I think there are, um, again, my understanding of the Black Lives Matter broader movement is that there are multiple groups, but there is one that owns the domain blacklivesmatter.com. This is the larger group that seems to get the most money, including money from George Soros. That's a fact. I know that once someone brings up the name George Soros, people are like, oh, you must be lying because you must be a crazy conspiracy. I'm just telling you that's a fact. You do what you will with that information. I, that's up to you. I'm just telling you. Um, but so this is the most funded Black Lives Matter organization. And you can go to blacklivesmatter.com and you can go to about and you can go to what we believe because I'd like to read through this together. And let's see if it is addressing the, the um, because the same thing that allows Jeff Bezos to make $13 billion in a day is, is you know, it's a symptom of the same system that allows many black people and minority and minorities uh, to live in extreme poverty in cities. And it allows many white rural people to live in poverty uh, not in cities, but in the places like the Rust Belt. Um, and it also allows for these cities that are um, ghost towns like Detroit and Scranton, Pennsylvania, to give you a few examples. Um, so let's <clears throat> let's read through this Black Lives Matter, um, their mission statement let's read through it and let's see if we can find some interesting things and i can only say that i hope that there is a mention of the prison industrial complex which i really hope because the problem with the prison industrial complex is that it incentivizes it financially incentivizes judges and uh it incentivizes cities to build prisons and it incentivizes judges to fill the prisons. It incentivizes police chiefs to be tougher on crime because this way they can funnel more quote-unquote criminals, more than half of which are nonviolent, more than half of our criminal population or our prison population, which is 2.3 million, are, are nonviolent offenders. So that should disturb you. Um, and so I hope they mention that because... That seems to be a big part of this whole thing, you know? So I, I really hope they mention that, but let's see if they do. What we believe four years ago, what is now known as the Black Lives Matter Global Network began to organize. It started out as a chapter-based member-led organization whose mission was to build local power and to intervene when violence was inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. I think that sounds great. I think that the more local you can keep things, the less likely they are to become corrupt. And so local, I think that's, that's, that's a good thing to focus on. I mean, that's not what this is any longer, this um, particular Black Lives Matter movement. Again, I'm saying that because there are multiple from my understanding. And some of them probably are local and unaffiliated with this. And those are the ones that I would completely support. Well, I'd have to look at their mission statement. But I, I, uh, I think that 
again, like the more local you can keep something like this, the less money involved and the less likely people are to become corrupt or to take things in a direction where we don't necessarily want them to go or where, pe where people who support a movement don't want it to go. In the years since, we've committed to struggling together and to imagining and creating a world of free, creating a world free of anti-blackness where every black person has the social, economic, and political power to thrive. That sounds that sounds good. I, I got nothing wrong with that there. Black Lives Matter began as a call to action in response to state-sanctioned violence and anti-black black racism. Um, our intention from the very beginning was to connect black people from all over the world who have a shared desire for justice to act together in their communities. The impetus for that commitment was and still is the rampant and deliberate violence inflicted on us by the state. This is true. The state does inflict violence on many people and the state has a, um, is called a monopoly on violence because the only for the most part only the state can use violence unless in some states you can you can use violence to defend yourself or your property but that isn't even extend to all states so it depends where you're at but yeah generally speaking only the state has the ability to use violence which is a good thing and a bad thing in certain ways. And that's something I'd like to explore in my own brain, but we'll save that for a different, we'll save that for a different episode. Because if the state doesn't have a monopoly on violence, then everyone can be violent. And then that might not be so good. Enraged by the death of Trayvon Martin, again, and Trayvon Martin would be a good example of that because that wasn't state sanctioned. In interesting, because look, it just said, that's an interesting, they shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have used Trayvon right there. They should have used someone else because they just had rampant and deliberate violence inflicted by the state. But Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman, who was a vigilante and he was not an, he was not a member of the state. He was not acting on behalf of the state. I mean, maybe he thought he was, but that, that was a bad, but it's fine. Point taken again. Enraged by the death of Trayvon Martin and the subsequent acquittal of his killer, George Zimmerman, and inspired by the 31-day takeover of the Florida State Capitol by Power U and the Dream Defenders, we took to the streets. A year later, we set out together on the Black Lives Matter Freedom Ride to Ferguson in search of justice for Mike Brown and all of those who have been torn apart by state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism. Forever changed, we returned home and began building the infrastructure for the Black Lives Matter global network, which, even in its infancy, has become a political home for many. See, this is where it starts to get a little weird. I'm like, Black Lives Matter global network? I don't know if that's... Um, I mean, not that that's bad, but I think, again, like I said, for all the reasons I said, maybe keeping it a little more local, um, I guess I can understand... Uh, the the logic behind wanting to have an a broader umbrella under which these organizations can fall but to make it to make it you know like the, the, the global um whatever you know to make it the uh what what what, 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 what am i looking for whatever it doesn't matter um 
Ferguson helped to catalyze, we're continuing, Ferguson helped to catalyze a movement to which we've all helped give life. Organizers who call this network home have ousted anti-black politicians, won critical legislation to benefit black lives, and changed the terms of the debate on blackness around the world. Uh, it would be cool if they included some examples, I think. Um, critical legislation to benefit black lives. I'm wondering what that what they're referring to. And maybe you know and you can tell me, but I don't know. I mean, I know that they definitely got, to their credit, they got George Floyd's uh, killers arrested. They definitely did that. That wouldn't have happened if there wasn't a bunch of uh, civil disobedience and protesting. That wouldn't have happened. So, but again, critical legislation to benefit Black Lives. I'm wondering specifically what are they talking about? I'm wondering through movement and relationship building. We have also helped catalyze other movements and shifted culture with an eye toward the dangerous impacts of anti-blackness. You know, see, that's the... Again, I don't know if that's the best... If that's the best strategy. I don't know if it's... You should be turning an eye to the dangerous impacts of anti-blackness in, in the sense that, not that that doesn't exist, but it's uh, exclusive. It's And it's also, um, again, it's like, it's, it's like you want to shift culture with an eye towards the dangerous impacts of, uh, what's the word? Unfettered capitalism. And you want to probably shift culture with an eye towards the dangerous impacts of for-profit prisons, don't you think? And you want to, you know, shift culture with an eye towards the obscene amount of wealth held by the small, small, small number of people at the very, very top. So, and that all impacts anti-blackness. And it creates a lot of the, uh, again, it creates a lot of the, um, I got to eat food. I'm hungry. And so I'm, I'm not thinking straight, but it creates a lot of the situations that lead to black people finding themselves in, in prison or killed by police. Um, which the first is, is uh, I don't know, like, because th this is something that could get easily misinterpreted. So the amount of people in general who get killed by police every year in the United States is like, it's uh, especially unarmed people is not a lot. It's like a few hundred. It might even be, it's, it's just a couple hundred. Um. I saw, you know, basically like unarmed black people who got killed by the cops in 2018 or 19. I forget what I was looking at. It's either 2018 or 2019. It was 25, 25 unarmed black people got killed by cops, which is terrible. It is way less than I thought the reality was but it, based on 
this movement and everything. I thought that it was going to be, I was, I thought it was going to be thousands of unarmed black people got killed by the police. Um, but it was 25. And, uh, you know, I, I think, again, proportionately, it was higher than you would expect because I think for white people, it was a similar number. It might have been more. But the percentages would lead you to believe that black people are being targeted more than white people, which I wouldn't take issue with. But you, you juxtapose that with the fact that there's like over a million black people, men and women in jail, in prison, in prison, you know, not jail. Prison means longer than a one year sentence. So you've got over a million. I'm not sure what the specific number is. I'm just, I know that there's 2.3 million or about that's the prison population in the United States. And I know that at least half of that has to be black people. You know, even if it was Less than half, that would still be a million. Um, I th you know, even if it was 30%, then that would be like 750,000 black people in jail. So, you know, I mean, again, like easy to misinterpret. Where should the focus be? It should be getting those people out of jail because those people have a lot of those for example, our fathers. And when they're in jail, they cannot be a father to their child. And a father turns out to be a very important, um, turns out to be a very important uh, factor in terms of a child getting involved in crime. So a child with a father is way less likely to become involved in crime than a child who doesn't have a father. And if your dad's in jail for many years while you're growing up, then you effectively don't have a father. I mean, you, he's, he's, he can't be a part of your life. So, and then how many people does that end up saving because they don't find themselves in these predicaments with police? You know, if like... So like the, the best thing that a movement like Black Lives Matter could do is to be ha, ha, like hardcore lobbying for especially weed to be legalized and for everyone who's in jail for weed to be let out of jail. This would have such a great impact on the black community. You know, I mean, it's just like, I don't think it's bad to focus on uh, police brutality because, you know, I mean, you see some of these cops in these videos and they just completely take advantage of the power that they have. And it's a very human thing to completely abuse any degree of power that you're given, even if it's just a little bit. I mean, you see people in stores now and they're enforcing the mask rules. And I've seen physical altercations where there are workers who are like, you're not allowed to come in here. And there's a person who's not wearing a mask. And the person's like, fuck you. I'm going in. And then this, these employees, you see them start to physically assault the person who's not wearing a mask. And look, I mean, some of you, some of you people who are, who are, you know, mega cucks for the state, you, um, I'm sorry, I don't mean to insult you, but some of you would would look at that and say, well, that person by not wearing a mask is putting everyone in danger. And so they deserve to be assaulted. 
okay, maybe let the cops do it though. Again, we just said the cop, the state has a, you can't do that. You know, you're now assaulting that person. You don't have justification. Like, like, I mean, you know, like it or not, this is what we decided as a society that we would have a specialized group of people who are going to be able to who are going to be able to physically subdue someone or to use violence. So you can't just take that because you work at target. You don't get to just decide that you're going to physically assault someone for not wearing a mask. You don't get to do that. But again, it's like they've been given this small degree of power and they're abusing it because they hate their lives. They work at, you know, Walmart. Maybe they don't hate their lives, but there's clearly some, I don't see how you could really love your life if you work at one of these minimum wage jobs at a corporate giant like Target or Walmart or something. But then they get, you know, they're like, hey, you got to enforce the mask policy. And they're like, oh, man, I'm going to fucking assault someone. Just wait. They're like, I'm they love when someone comes in without a mask. Some people hate the confrontation and some people love it. So we know people like this exist and some of them are cops. And uh, so it is an issue. I just don't think uh, this energy is necessarily being pointed in the right direction. And I think that's why a lot of these corporations are very willing to get behind this movement. I think that that should make everyone very suspicious. When when corporations get behind anything, you should immediately become suspicious of that. Let's continue reading. Hold on. Okay. Okay. The Black Lives Matter Global Network is as powerful as it is because of our membership, our partners, our supporters, our staff, and you. Oh, they're talking about me. That's so nice. Our continued commitment to liberation for all black people means we are continuing the work of our ancestors and fighting for our collective freedom because it is our duty. Well, if they're committed to liberation of all black people, they should probably... Isn't there a slave trade going on in... uh, where is it again? Hold on. Oh, okay. It's Libya. I just found this uh, Time article. It's uh, By the time his Libyan captors had branded his face, Sunday Iabrot, I don't know how to say that, had already run away twice and had been sold three times. You know they got slaves in, in Libya, Rich? I still don't know where they're about Because there's a bee in there? Okay. The gnarled scar that covers most of the left side of his face appears to show a crude number three. His jailer carved it into his cheek with a fire-heated knife, cutting and cauterizing at the same time. Jesus, his face is fucking mutilated. Uh, Ibarat, I'm just going to say that as his name. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Sunday. I'm messing up your name left Nigeria in February 2016 with a plan to head northward and by passage on a smuggler's boat destined for Europe, where he had heard from friends on Facebook that jobs were plentiful. The journey of more than 2,500 miles would take him across the trackless desert plains of Niger and through the lawless tribal lands of southern Libya before depositing him at the southern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. He never made it. Instead, He was captured the moment he arrived in Libya, then sold to armed men who kept a stable of African migrants they exploited for labor and ransom. 
The brand on his face, he says, was both punishment and a mark of identification. 14 other men who attempted to escape, to escape the fetid warehouse where they had been held as captive labor in Bani Walid, Libya, for several months in 2017, were similarly scarred, though the symbols differed. I'm just going to use his first name. His first name is Sunday. Sunday, who is illiterate, wasn't sure if they were numbers or letters or merely the twisted doodles of deranged men who saw their black captives as little more than livestock to be bought and sold. It was as if we weren't human, the 32-year-old from Benin City, Nigeria, tells Time. Sunday is among an estimated 650,000 men and women who have crossed the Sahara over the past five years dreaming of a better life in Europe. Some are fleeing war and persecution. Others, like Sunday, are leaving villages where economic dysfunction and erratic rainfall make it impossible to find work or even enough to eat. <clears throat> to make the harrowing journey, they enlist the services of trans-Saharan smugglers who profit by augmenting their truckloads of weapons, drugs, and other contraband goods with human cargo. But along the way, tens of thousands, like Sunday, are finding themselves treated not just as cargo, but as cattle, trapped in a terrifying cycle of extortion, imprisonment, forced labor, and prostitution, according to the estimates by the International Organization for Migration and the UN Office on Drugs and Crime. They are not only facing inhumane treatment, they are being sold from one trafficker to another, says Carlotta Sammy, Southern European regional spokesperson for UNHCR and the UN, or no, UNHCR, which is the UN refugee agency. Essentially, they're slaves, human beings who have been reduced to being possessions with a fixed value based on assessments of the kind of income they can accrue to their partners to their I'm sorry to their owners as targets for extortion as unpaid labor or as is often the case with women prostitutes slavery may seem like a relic of history but according to the UN's international labor organization there are more than three times as many people forced into servitude today as were captured and sold during the 350 year span of the transatlantic slave trade I'm going to read that again According to the UN's International Labor Organization, the ILO, there are more than three times as many people forced in forced servitude today as were captured and sold during the 350-year span of the transatlantic slave trade. I didn't know this. What the ILO calls the new slavery takes in 25 million people in debt bondage and 15 million people in forced marriage. As an illicit industry, it is one of the world's most lucrative, earning criminal networks $150 billion a year just behind drug smuggling and weapons trafficking. Modern slavery is far and away more profitable now than at any point in human history, says Siddharth Kara, an economist at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. This is remarkable. The corridor from Africa's most populous country to its northern Mediterranean shores has proved especially lucrative. As conflict, climate change, and a lack of opportunity push increasing numbers of people across the borders, draconian European Union policies designed to curb immigration funnel them into the hands of modern-day slave drivers. 
The trade might be most visible in Lib Libya, where aid organizations and journalists have documented actual slave auctions. But now it is seeping into southern Europe, too, particularly in Italy, where vulnerable migrants are being forced to toil unpaid in the fields, picking tomatoes, olives, citrus fruits, and trafficked into prostitution rings. We no longer need slavers going into Africa to capture their quarry, says Abo Abu Bakar Sumahoro, a union, I think I said that right, a union representative who came to Italy from Ivory Coast 17 years ago with the hope of finding a better life. The rope of des desperation has replaced their iron chains. Now Africans are sending themselves to Europe and becoming slaves in the process. When and that, that's a quote from uh, Abu Bakar. When Sunday reached, remember Sunday, he's our main character. When Sunday reached Libya's sun southern border, he met a seemingly friendly taxi driver who offered to drive him to the capital city, Tripoli. I like Sam Tripoli for free. Instead, I, I, I'm going to be stunned by this. This guy was saying he was going to be friendly. Taxi driver offered him to drive him to the capital city for free. Instead, he was sold to a white Libyan or Arab for $200. He was forced to work off his quote unquote debt on a construction site, a pattern that repeated each time he was sold and resold. If you work hard, you get bread. He means literal bread, not bread like what rappers say. He tells time from the darkened room of an abandoned hotel in Benin City that the Nigerian government is using to house human trafficking victims rescued from Libya. If you refuse to work, you are beaten. If you run away and get caught, his voice trails off. The scar on his face says the rest. In 2016, the year Sunday set out from Nigeria, the number of migrants arriving in Italy from Libya spiked to 163,000, prompting a political backlash and determination to staunch the flow at all costs. In February 2017, the EU launched a plan to train and equip the Libyan Coast Guard to intercept smuggler boats and to keep the migrants in detention camps. Two years later, the arrivals in Italy are down 89%. But the policy has caused a bottleneck on the other side of the Mediterranean and a lingering humanitarian crisis. The IOM estimates that nearly half a million sub-Saharan African migrants, half a million sub-Saharan African migrants, are currently trapped in Libya, ripe for exploitation by armed groups and corrupt officials. Julie Oka Donley, director of Nigeria's National Agency for the Prohibition of Trafficking in Persons, went on a fact-finding mission to Libya last year after hearing reports of Nigerians living in, quote, slave-like conditions. She tells Time she was sickened by what she saw. In some of the camps we visited, they had already taken truckloads of the guys to go work on the farms and in the factories for no pay at all. As long as they are in those camps, they are treated like slaves. When CNN aired footage, because that sounds a lot like what they do in the prison industrial complex, where they force uh, prisoners to work for nothing or for 22 cents a day in New Jersey. And the highest it gets is a dollar a day. In certain states, it goes up to a dollar a day, but other states don't pay at all. So 
that sounds similar to um, the life of a United States prisoner, to be honest. When CNN aired footage of what happened to be African migrants being sold at a slave auction at a Libya de- Libyan detention camp in November 2017, the outrage was immediate and global. The UN Security Council condemned the heinous abuses. The EU demanded swift action. And the French President Emmanuel Macron called for a military rescue operation. Um, this goes on for for a bit more. I only read probably half of it. So if you're interested in continuing this, I didn't intend to read as much as I did. But I thought that this, I mean, I just... I was just going to read like the first paragraph, but I think this is very interesting and it's probably something worth looking into. And the only reason I brought it up is because it says here on the Black Lives Matter page that their commitment is the liberation for all black people. Um, so it's a global network and it's committed to the liberation for all black people, but there is no mention of this Libyan slave trade. I mean, I've heard very, I was only like lightly, slightly aware that there was a Libyan slave trade going on, not just in Libya, but I was aware barely about this because no one really reports on it. But that's, that's why I wanted to keep reading this because I, I feel like probably a lot of you also aren't so familiar. Maybe I'm making assumptions. Maybe you were very familiar, but this is new to me. And it's pretty horrible, and uh, it seems to be a lot worse than than what's going on in the United States outside of prisons, and probably it's worse than what's going on inside of prisons, if not by too much. They're not they're not using um, scalding hot knives to carve numbers into people's faces in United States prisons, but some of the other stuff in this article is. Uh, similar to conditions that U.S. prisoners deal with. But again, we're halfway through the Black Lives Matter mission statement, and we have yet to hear about prisoners. We have yet to hear about the prison industrial complex, and we have yet to hear about if this is a global movement, we have yet to hear about this slave trade that's going on, which is curious. And I would say unfortunate. Every day we recommit to, I'm continuing the uh, Black Lives Matter um, mission statement. Every day we recommit to healing ourselves and each other and to co-creating alongside comrades. That's, again, this is curious language. Comrades is, that's some communist language. Now, I'm not going to be the communist scare tactic guy, but when people do go calling the, when People use that scaremongering and they go, Black Lives Matter is a communist movement. So they use it to scare people away from the movement or to vilify the movement. And I don't think you're doing yourself any favors if you're going to say comrades. So every day we recommit to healing ourselves and each other and to creating alongside comrades, allies, and family, a culture where each person feels seen, heard, and supported. We acknowledge, respect, and celebrate differences and commonalities. It doesn't seem like they celebrate differences. It doesn't seem like that. They seem pretty um, dogmatic. 
you're with us or against us. I, I don't get the vibe that they celebrate differences. We work vigorously for freedom and justice for black people and by extension, all people. Interesting. So all lives do matter. Oh, you got yourselves. <laughs> I'm just joking. But uh, but no, for real. Um, okay. So you work vigorously for freedom and justice for black people and by extension, all people. I think um, you need to adjust that sentence. We work vigorously for freedom and justice for all people and by extension, black people, right? I don't know. That's something like the ACLU. Like the ACLU works vigorously for freedom and justice for all people, all Americans. And so by extension, black people are a part of that. And the ACLU does help black people, you know, in court um, frequently. Um, we intentionally build and nurture a beloved community that is bonded together through a beautiful struggle that is restorative, not depleting. Well, that's a nice message. I like that. We are unapologetically black in our positioning, as you should be. That's some Malcolm X shit right there. That's good. In affirming that black lives matter, we need not qualify our position. Um, well... Okay, to love and desire freedom and justice for ourselves is a prerequisite for wanting the same for others. Um, I think that uh, maybe you don't need to qualify your position, but it couldn't hurt, right? I mean, it's like the whole defund the police thing. It's like that required a lot of uh, interpretation. That was the big problem that people had with it. They were like, well, what do you mean defund the police? And if what if someone had said that, like, in affirming that we want to defund the police, we need not qualify our position. It's like always probably a prudent decision if you're going to qualify your position. It's probably a good idea. Maybe you don't have to do it, um, but I don't see, it couldn't hurt. We see ourselves as part of the global black family, except for the, the Libyan slave trade. I added that myself. And we are aware of the different ways we are impacted or privileged as black people who exist in different parts of the world. We see ourselves as part of the black, global black community and we are aware of the different ways we are impacted or privileged as black people who exist in different parts of the world. Okay. I guess that kind of addresses the fact that there are still, you know, slaves in certain places in Africa and Europe, but, and United States prisons, but they didn't mention it. They just said different parts of the world. We are guided by the fact that all black lives matter, regardless of actual or perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious beliefs or disbeliefs, immigration status or location, except if they're in Libya. Again, I added that myself. I mean... You know, I don't know why they're getting into the weeds and all this, in all this stuff. It's, I know that I made this point on, on my last podcast, but I'll make it again really quickly just to apply it to this. When you speak in certain language that is part of the woke ideology, when you talk about things like intersectionality, for example, or heteronormativism, if, if that's heteronormative, whatever you are speaking in a language of privilege and you're speaking in a way that 
whether or not it is deliberate, it 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 uh, diminishes the um, message, the ability for the message to be widespread. People don't understand it. And it turns people off. And I think, um, you know, like, look, let's continue here because look where this is headed. So we are guided by the fact that black, all Black Lives Matter, regardless of actual or perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious beliefs or disbeliefs, immigration status or location. It's not necessarily bad. Let's continue. We make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. Okay. I don't know why you would need to mention that. You know? Like, just do that. And I don't know why. Like, that's like a little virtue signally. Like, we make space for transgenders, brothers and sisters to participate and lead. Like, like who? <laughs> Are there any names? I mean, it's also just very small population. You know, I mean, let's continue and I'll, I'll make the point I'm trying to make. We are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege. This is where we're going with this now? I thought we were, I thought it was about like white privilege and I thought this was a more economic thing. We're talking about cisgender privilege. We are self-reflexive when we do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. I mean, this is like, now it's getting weird, man. I mean, it's getting weird. Do you see that? This is now the language is more pronounced this language of uh, this woke language. We build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, and environments in which men are centered. It's like you had me till the last part. What is an environment in which men are centered? And is it inherently bad? You know, I mean, an environment in which men are centered might be for reasons that aren't malicious. It might be. It might be for bad reasons. It might also not be. Men and women happen to have different interests. You know, I mean, there's a lot of overlap. I would agree on that. But anyone who has like a girlfriend or a sister knows that men and women have different interests in a lot of ways. And so... There are going to be environments which are men, male-centered, and there are going to be environments that are female-centered. So, I, I don't know. I mean, okay. It's interesting. We practice empathy. Again, I think it's selective empathy. It's very selective. I don't, again, it goes back to what I was saying about, like, they say they, they love difference, but it doesn't seem like they like certain kinds of difference. I think they're empathetic. To a certain point, they're certainly not empathetic to cops. I'm not saying I am a cop defender, but they are certainly not empathetic to cops. I think a lot of people aren't empathetic to cops. I think I was at, uh, I was in Ridgewood and this really bothered me because there was a Black Lives Matter 
little protest that they had where they were marching on the street. And it was all white people. There were two black people out of about 100. And they were just chanting, yelling chants, walking down the, up and down the street, doing nothing but making themselves feel good. You know, and they put the one black guy out of the two in the front of the parade because these are, these are white allies. These are white saviors. And it was just really uh, self-serving. It just, it just came off that way. And uh, as they're marching, there was some guy on the side of the road. I was standing right by a cop because I was just drinking coffee and just kind of watching. I was with Nicole and Rachel, and we were just kind of watching, and we were nearby a cop. And these cops aren't the problem. I am, I'm, I'm willing to bet a lot of money that in the town of Ridgewood, a very safe, very safe town and rich, that a police officer has probably, they, I bet in the history of Ridgewood, it's like less than five people have died at the hands of the police. And I'm, I, would, I would bet that probably maybe none of them were, hold on, I'll look it up. Okay, it turns out that that's actually very hard information to find um, how many police shootings in the history of Ridgewood, New Jersey. Um, it's a little too specific, but, you know, I, I, it just doesn't see, I mean, it's very, it's not the type of place where that kind of thing happens. And so it's not the type of place where that kind of thing is a big problem. It's not like uh, Newark. There are plenty of places in New Jersey. These people could have gone to protest in Newark. It's not far from Ridgewood. It's like a 30 minute drive. So... Again, it's like they want to do the, the, the easy the easy kind of uh, take a little walk, take a little stroll through Ridgewood and chant. And uh, they, they can feel like they, they did something and they're, they're making a difference. They're having an impact. Um, and they can feel good about themselves because that's what that was about. I don't, I don't think that I think many of these are like totally legit protests. You know, like when I see people. You know, when when that first when it first started happening in Minnesota, it's like those people were there for the right reasons and they're angry and fed up. But then when I see these white people, you know, not not to to be racist to white people, but when I really when I see these rich people, there's it's thundering. When I see these rich people, it doesn't matter what color they are, these rich people in Ridgewood, they want to feel good about themselves. That's what that was about. That march was about feeling good for the, about themselves. You know, they don't, maybe they care, but not a good look from what I was seeing. It was very self-centered. Okay, let's continue. We're almost done, folks. We're almost done. And you know what? The whole fucking point of this was going to be to tell you about the the, the Patriot Act, but I, I'm not even going to do that now because we're already in an hour and a half. So I'm going to do that in the next episode, but it's very important. I really want to tell you guys about it. So I'll do that on the next episode and I'll talk about other stuff. This is kind of the new format. I've realized that the books that I like, it's like a mix of like the author who I like giving their opinion on things, but then also providing evidence and citing other writers and citing stuff like this. Like we're going through, like we want to know about Black Lives Matter. We want to talk about Black Lives Matter. Well, let's go to their mission statement and let's talk about it. Let's go through it. So this is kind of the new format and I think it's way better dude I think it's already working very well so this is kind of going to be a thing okay let's continue we practice empathy 
That's where I left off. We engage comrades. They did it again. <laughs> we engage comrades with the intent to learn about and connect with their contexts. So what, what did that, what did that mean? You know, what does that mean? We engage comrades with the intent to learn about and connect with their contexts, their personal experience, like context comrades. We engage members, we engage people with the intent to learn about and, you know, comrades, you had to, I mean, it's funny because like woke activists will, will point at any language and be like, that's a dog whistle. They'll say anything Trump says, they're like, that's a white supremacist dog whistle. Well, there's really no, there's like, if you want to talk about a, uh, a communist dog whistle, like a message or, or a, uh, a uh, you know, to, to let other communists know that, you know, you're, you're, you're in this thing. It would be the word comrade. That's a big one. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'll do one on the, I'll do a podcast episode on communism too and Marxism, and it will be a lot different than what it would have been probably a year ago. I feel a lot differently about it. And I don't think it's, I think it, I think it's bad, but not all bad. You know, that's where I'm at on it. So I'll tell you about it. So I'm not trying to be one of these guys. It's like, it's communism. I noticed that a lot of libertarians do that. And they go, it's socialism. It's horrible. And I'm like, dude, you're not really offering a better alternative. This is where I draw an issue with that. So I'm like, can we talk about it? You have to vilify it. Can't you be open? Can't you be a little open-minded to the ideas? Everyone needs to be a little more open-minded to the ideas. I was not open-minded to most ideas, and I'm becoming more open-minded to ideas, even feminist ideas at this point. There are certain feminist ideas that I'm open to. Jesus Christ, what a turnaround. So, okay. Let's finish this up. We make our spaces family-friendly and enable parents to fully participate with their children. Well, why wouldn't you? (laughs) Why wouldn't you do that? Like we have, uh, we, we separate the children from their parents generally as part of our organization is, uh, kind of step one is we take the parents and we put them in one place, we take the kids, we put them in another place and we just brainwash the fuck out of them while the parents are gone. That's what we do. It's one of our tenants. I don't know why you would have to feel the need to put that there. Anyway, we make our spaces family friendly and enable parents to fully participate with their children. We dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts so that they can mother in private, even as they participate in public justice work. What does that mean? We dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mother to work double shifts so that they can mother in private, even as they participate. I don't know what that means. And I would also say that if they're talking about how mothers have to be mothers and also work, then I don't think that's a patriarchal practice. That seems like more of a capitalist, like a symptom of capitalism, a bad symptom. But I don't know what the sentence means. So that they can mother in private, even as they participate in public justice. I mean, I think that if anything has been uh, demonstrated to us, that this thing just kind of falls apart the deeper we've gotten into this uh, mission statement. 
at the beginning it was like very i was really on board and by this point it's like you're really the the wheels are falling off you know this is really falling apart and this is where it gets the worst the next sentence that i'm about to read so let's get there and keep in mind that the last paragraph just said we make our spaces family friendly okay now let's continue we disrupt the western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and quote villages that collectively care for one another especially our children to the degree that mothers parents and children are comfortable okay there are so many things wrong with this paragraph there are so many things wrong with this paragraph right here and it seems like if you're going to target the bad things about western society the obvious target is capitalism when it is out of control when everything is a commodity everything is a commodity people are commodities that's why there's a fucking libyan libyan tra uh, slave trade because we have a global capitalist market so there's money to be made i mean that's why there's you know jesus that's why there's people in the prisons who are working for free or for 22 cents an hour and it's not voluntary so, but you want to go after the nuclear family structure and you haven't even mentioned the for-profit prisons. This is a problem. Even if you're a BLM supporter, this should be concerning to you. I don't see how this is not concerning to someone. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Now, the, I mean, and the, the, the most obscene aspect of the stance that they're taking is that what we described earlier what makes a child especially a young man the most likely to engage in crime and then get himself in the prison system is not having a father not having a nuclear family so why are you going after that that seems to be one of the causes for some of the issues that we face as a society right now is the the you know, destabilization of the idea of the nuclear family. I mean, the statistics on black kids who grow up without a two-parent home is insane. It's crazy. It's like 60 or 70%. It's fucking insane. And then, you know, for, for white kids growing up, it's less, but it's still, I think, like 25 or 30%. It's a lot. I mean, a lot of people are growing up in one-parent homes. So that's not a nuclear family structure, and it's clearly not working out so well. But then they go extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children. Like, what are you talking? That starts to sound like Plato's Republic, you know, where the state raises the children. It's, it sounds weird. I mean, this is a weird. I don't think most people know this. I think a lot of people don't realize that this is in here. I think a lot of people who support BLM and do hashtag BLM didn't read this and it's only one page. So you could read it. I mean, maybe it's two pages, but you can read it. And uh, I think no one read it because I think that if someone had read it and I only found out about that uh, nuclear family thing because uh, Marcellus Wiley had pointed it out on one of the sports talk shows that he's on. And I don't even really, I don't watch sports talk shows, but I had just, one of the podcasts that I was watching on YouTube, they 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 linked the you know they put the clip in of him saying it. Marcellus Wiley is is great, dude. I love him. He's hilarious. I don't agree with everything he says, but he's he's funny and uh, astute. 
and he called this out. And he's a, you know, he's a black man, a former NFL player. And, um, you know, and he noticed this and he was disturbed by it. So he brought it to people's attention. Okay, I had to just go upstairs really quick because Rachel was yelling. Um, okay, so we're going to finish this up. Um, just, you know, a few more sentences, folks. Uh, okay, we foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. Or rather, the belief that all in the world are heterosexual, unless he or she disclose otherwise. Again, it's it's getting weird. I mean, it's just not like, you know, this is not how you build a, a movement and a coalition. This is not how you do it. I mean, they think they are. It's actually achieving the opposite uh, result. You know, I mean, it's like you don't have to. Uh, when we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. Like, why don't you just you could just say we support the LGBT uh, community. You know, I mean, this is like the, the way they're phrasing it. It's like these are people who are who are ideologically driven. And we know about the ideology that they're referencing. And I can talk about it on a different podcast. I mean, if you want to see something like very interesting about the woke ideology, you can look up James Lindsay and him and a few other academics like basically wrote these fake papers um, that were just made up uh, these uh, academic papers. And like a few of them got accepted by uh, a few of them got accepted by like prominent journals. One of them is about how like dogs fucking in the park, um, you know, promotes rape culture. Some ridiculous shit. It's funny, but it's also it'll give you it'll give you it'll peel back the curtain um, on some of this. This woke ideology that, um, you know, there are some there are some glaring flaws with it, as there are with any ideology as there is with communism, as there is with, with capitalism, you know? But this one in particular, you keep turning over stones and you're just finding snakes everywhere with this, with this one. Um, last two sentences, I promise. Last three. We cultivate an intergenerational and communal network free of ageism. Like, again, why would you need to say that? Like any movement... Any movement that's grassroots that people actually believe in is going to be, it's going to be like varying ages, you know, it might, you know, Bernie formed a grassroots movement and it was more young people, but it's not like it was devoid from older people. There were a lot of older people. You got these 1960s, like actual, well, maybe not actual liberals, but maybe they're trying to, uh, get back to that kind of, uh, that kind of vibe, but there was, there was plenty. Uh, we believe that all people, regardless of age, show up with the capacity to lead and learn. Well, that's so nice that you think that, and it's weird that you would need to say that too. 
Last sentence. We embody and practice justice, liberation, except for in Libya, and peace in our engagements with one another. So look at that. We did it. We got through the whole thing, and they did not mention prisons once. They did not mention prisoners once. They did not mention nonviolent criminals. They did not mention mandatory minimum sentences. They did not mention the three-strike policy. They didn't mention the any of the crime bills, especially the 1994 crime bill. They didn't mention for-profit prisons. None of it. So this is the movement, folks. This is the movement. You know, they did mention plenty about black trans women. Okay, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but when you, when you consider the fact that they don't mention anything about the prisons, about for-profit prisons, that's like, what, I mean, dude, if you're going to rank the actual problems that the black community faces, that's got to be top three. It's got to be. I mean, it's insane. And the impact that it has on subsequent generations. I mean, dude, if you're a felon in jail because you were selling weed, you're not getting a job when you get out. So you can't support your family. What does that make you more likely to do? To get back into crime. That's why recidivism rates are so high. It makes so it makes too much sense. It makes too much sense. So 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 if something makes too much sense, it seems like in our society, in modern 2020 American society, if something makes a lot of sense, don't do it. Do the thing that makes the least sense possible. So, okay, you know, I mean, this is, so this is, this is our movement. This is our, uh, our organization. This is BLM. This is what we support. This is what we're donating money to. Um, so maybe now uh, that you're aware, maybe you have a different opinion on it. I certainly do. Um, there's so much to talk about that we're going to get into. Um, in, in podcasts coming up and, uh, I'm going to try to be more active and putting out more and I love it. It's great because for a while there, I had nothing to say and that's why I didn't make a podcast, but here we are. I just made an hour and a half one the other day. Now we got an hour and 46 minutes right here. So, but I think it's good. I think it's a good hour and 46 minutes because it didn't feel like I was, uh, it didn't feel like a, uh, you know what I mean? It didn't feel like I was pulling teeth at all. You felt it, it just worked. I mean, there's just a lot of when you have the information in front of you, it's like I'm sitting in front of my computer. So I should also probably start filming this because I think that would be to have a visual component would be good. But anyway, thank you for listening. You know, I love you. I'll talk to you next time. Bye.